You are listening to the weekly podcast of City Church Orlando, located just off of 1792 at 650 Airport Boulevard in Sanford, Florida. Our website, orlandocitychurch.org. Today, our guest speaker is Dr. James Bradford, General Secretary for the Assemblies of God. Cover to cover, the Bible can be summed up with this. The God who created us has also acted to rescue us. Our scripture text comes from 2 Kings chapter 7. Today's message is entitled, Two Lessons from Four Losers. Well, thank you. Good morning, everyone. Good to see you. Man, if I live near here, this is where I'd want to go to church. This is an amazing place. I've been having so much fun being with all of you today. And, and just the, the Spirit of God here, wonderful folks who seem to really like each other. That kind of helps when you go to church, right? And, uh, and joy. I mean, you're even happy even though you have to listen to a guest speaker instead of your pastor. Oh, man, you are good. I love that. And uh, I deeply appreciate Pastor Smith and Laura. They came all the way to the other side of the city to pick me up today. They must have had to drive, what, was that 40 minutes, half hour, 40 minutes to get over there? So, man, they have, they have, uh, they've gone out of their way today. And Pastor David here, this guy's wired, isn't he? Man, I like him. He's wired. And what I'm so grateful, proud of you for what you're doing this week in your city. In fact, when we were think, singing that last song, I felt like it was indeed, I don't think I'm telling you anything you don't know, but it is indeed prophetic over this congregation that greater things are yet to come. Greater things are yet to come. And you know, I, I, I pastored a church. Uh, I started out, I pioneered a church. The University of Minnesota campus when I was studying rocket science there, and uh, it, it was a, it, it never grew to the size that this church is. And I've also pastored churches a lot larger than this church. And at every stage, I was always happy. If, you know, my life would stay uncomplicated if it would just sort of stay at that level. It, you know, I like every church I passed. I kind of liked it where it was at that level. But uh, but I kept having to tell myself that we need to keep growing because every person that's added to this place is a person added to the kingdom of God. This is all about the love of a God who loved the world so much he gave his only son. And uh, that's why we even go into the neighborhoods and clean toilets. That's pretty awesome. Reminded me of the story of the, the husband who said to his wife, you know, whenever I get upset with you, you just always stay so calm. How do you keep your composure when I, because I sometimes blow my top and get really upset with you. And she says, oh, I just, uh, I just go clean the toilets. And he said, well, how does that help you? She said, I use your toothbrush. (laughs) (laughs) So maybe don't think about that this week, but, (laughs) well, we'll clean toilets for Jesus. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. And it's just nice to be in church. I, up to five months ago, I pastored a wonderful church, and they'd make fun of me because, you know, with my engineering background, I'd read physics books on vacation. i sit on the beach and read physics books for vacation. They'd just think I'm strange. And so finally they made this T-shirt for me. On the front it had the name of the church in a rocket, and on the back it had my pastor as a rocket scientist. And uh, that, that, is, uh, that is true, although, although being a pastor makes rocket science look easy, I'll tell you. I want to tell you, if you make it your life assignment to make sure these pastors stay encouraged, it'll do you well. Because, rocket, because pastoring, take it from me, is harder than rocket science. And uh, it's, uh, yet it's a great 
in a mighty calling and, and to be a part of a family and a body and to move forward in what Jesus is doing. There's there just really nothing like it. And although I spent nine years of my life studying the engineering sciences, I'd walk out of classes feeling like I'd been in a worship service. Uh, when I talk about science and religion, I, 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 I very confidently and very honestly say to people that my scientific studies strengthened my faith. It didn't confront my faith. We have amazing, there's nothing I study in science that made me believe there's not an incredible God out there. But if I could, if I could reduce this Bible to one, ver- one sentence, cover to cover this book in one sentence, it would be the God who created us has also acted to rescue us. And I spent nine years studying the creation, the incredible masterpiece of the creation of our creative God. But the God who did create took it one step further. He also acted to rescue us when he sent his son. Hallelujah for that. And that's why we're doing what we're doing, and there's nothing greater in the world than that. I'd like you to turn in your Bibles, please. I'd like to talk to you this morning about two lessons from four losers and I'd like you to take you way back into the Old Testament. This is always a little dangerous because it takes us a little f- longer to find it, you know, when it's in the Old Testament. But 2 Kings chapter 7. 2 Kings chapter 7. It's right after 1 Kings if you are having trouble finding that. And it's uh, in the time of Elisha. Remember the great prophet Elijah? His young, his, his young mentor, his young protege Elisha has now come up into his own authority as a prophet of God. It's in his time. And the moment we are introduced to these four losers, we are outside the city walls of a place called Samaria. This would be north of Jerusalem in the time of Elisha. And they're under attack by an army, the Arameans, this city of Samaria. So will you stand with me, please, in the presence of the king? We either kneel or stand. And for in reverence to his word, let's stand one more time. And we're going to read verses 3 and 4 to get us going today. And now there were four men with leprosy at the entrance of the city gate. And they said to each other, Why stay here until we die? If we say, We'll go into the city, the famine is there, and we will die. If we stay here, we will die. And so let's go over to the camp of the Arameans. That's the enemy and surrender. If they spare us, we live. And if they kill us, then we will die. That last sentence, by the way, is the understatement of the whole Bible. If they kill us, we will die. Oh, really? (laughs) Boy, glad I came to church today. It's amazing what you learn in church. If they kill us, we will die. So, Father, we pray that you will help us as we step into the lives of these Four losers, we pray that you will help us with things as close to your heart as we can imagine. And Lord, together, and will you agree with me that we welcome the presence of God in this place today to teach us the word of God, to shape the life and priority of the Lord in us, that the life of Jesus through us will be known. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. There's a black preacher, an African-American preacher, who took his college students aside one day and decided to talk to him about life and death. And he said, children, you're going to die. One of these days, they're going to take you out to the cemetery, drop you in a hole, throw some dirt on your face, 
and go back to the church and eat potato salad. When you were born, you alone were crying and everyone else was happy. The important question that I want to ask is this. When you die, are you alone going to be happy leaving everyone else crying? The answer depends on whether you live to get titles or whether you live to get testimonies. The degrees and the titles will only take you so far. But it's the stories we write in our relationships and the investment of our lives that when they do put us in the ground and go back to the church and eat potato salad, that they'll be crying for this singular reason. They lost the best friend they ever had. My junior high pastor, when I was pastoring in Southern California, came back from the, from the funeral of his father. And he said around the staff table as he was debriefing the experience of his dad's funeral with us, he said, I was sitting there and it hit me like a ton of bricks. People never remember me for what I gave to myself. They'll only remember me for what I gave away. And uh, that's, that's not going for the titles. That's going for the testimony. I want to introduce you this morning, though, to four, I call them losers. They're really lepers. But because they're lepers, they're losers. They had no hope. They definitely had no title except the ignominious title of leper. If you had leprosy, it was very disfiguring. Whole parts of your body fell off. And it was very desocializing because it was contagious, and so they isolated you. And it was very destructive because if you had leprosy, you will die fast. And so these guys were, because they needed to be quarantined, they were on the outside of the walls of this city of Samaria. They had no titles that could get them any kind of positive credit in life. And they probably were so handicapped by their affliction that they never asked for that they would have been classified first-class losers in their culture. And there would have been no way that anybody would cry at their funeral. What's more is that the city of Samaria is at this time under siege by the Aramean army. The Arameans had camped around them and was, as was common in ancient warfare, they just plain camped out. They didn't attack, they just camped out. And they kept anybody from either leaving or going into the city. And what they did was slowly starve the city to death. And then when it was an easy take, they'd charge in. And so the Arameans for quite some time had been surrounded this city. This city was under the siege of the enemy, and they were starving to death inside. In fact, in chapter 6, the previous chapter, maybe at a later time you'd want to read that, there's actually a story of cannibalism inside the walls of the city of Samaria. They are so hungry, they were eating their own children. These lepers are sitting on the outside. They can't see what we can see right now, but we can see the physical situation of Samaria and realize that they are a, figure, a, spirit, uh, they are a physical picture of the spiritual realities of this city and of this state, and of this world that we live in. Because just as physically Samaria was under siege by the enemy and starving to death, the people in this city, your pastor took me on a tour around the neighborhoods of this city before we came to church this morning. And I saw house after house after house where there are people who are laid siege against by the enemy, and his name is Satan, and spiritually they're starving to death. That's why God wants bigger churches. That's why God calls us to give it away. Because there is a reality in our world as comfortable as we want. And I like this place. The presence of God is here and there's air conditioning. I mean, what more can you ask for on a Sunday morning? Hallelujah. But you want to know 
we who take of spiritual food. We constantly need to remember that outside these walls are people who look spiritually like the city of Samaria looked physically, under attack and starving to death. And these lepers have everything in the world going against them, and, and they're the most unlikely people to become the heroes of the story. So here they are, and they're, they're talking to one another. They're saying, here's four of us sitting outside these walls. What do we do? Well, if we go inside the walls, number one, we're not going to be welcome. And the famine's inside. If we go inside of the walls, there's nothing to eat. We will die. If we stay right here, there's also nothing to eat. And we may get attacked by the enemy any day now. We will die. And so, let's go over. If there's any chance of surviving this, it's to go over and maybe they'll take us prisoners of war instead of killing us. But if they do kill us, we will die. Glad to know that. So obviously option C is the only option that may have a possible conclusion other than we will die. So they head over to the Arameans. What they did not know was that God had radically changed the political landscape the night before. About the time the sun was going down, the Arameans heard the sound of a massive invading army. There was no army. God just turned up the sound effects. They were terrified. They didn't have time to pack it up. They didn't have time to get their belongings or pull down their tents. They were terrified. It was so loud. It was like massive armies were about to come down their neck. And so they just took off. The entire Aramean army surrounding Samaria just headed for the hills. They ran for their lives and left everything. The story picks up in verse 8. And the men who had leprosy reached the edge of the camp. Remember they said, that's our only option. Let's go see our enemy. And they reached the edge of the camp and entered one of the tents. And not only is that tent empty, the entire camp is empty. And they ate and they drank and they carried away silver and gold and clothes and went off and hid them. Then they returned and entered another tent. I mean, this was like a day in Disneyland. This was like an incredible windfall. This was like unbelievable. I mean, the four most outclass guys in the entire city of Samaria, the four losers, they walk into a windfall of more food they can eat and more money than they could ever hide away. Just walked into it. Unbelievable. So they start going to tents, gorge themselves in this tent, and then grab the money and bury it. Next tent, gorge themselves again, and then bury the money. Next tent, gorge themselves again, and bury the money. And at some point, they must have started getting full. Because then they said to each other, and here's the key verse. It's the first half of verse 9. This is the central verse of this whole story. Then they said to each other, We are not doing right, for this is a day of good news. And we are keeping it to ourselves. Do you realize, although this is hundreds of years deep into the Old Testament before Christ, you, you could take that one verse and lift it up, and you could put it smack dab right in the middle of the New Testament. They said, what we're doing is not good, because this is a day of good news, and we're keeping it to ourselves. Do you know the word that means good news in the New Testament? Do you know what word that is? It's the word gospel. 
gospel, the gospel of Christ, that the God who created us has acted to rescue us. That's the good news. That's the gospel of Christ. Gospel means good news. And I believe one of the greatest sins of the church in America is that we have the good news and we're keeping it to ourselves. It's not an an issue like our pastor wants a bigger church. The issue is we have the good news and we're keeping it to ourselves. Yeah, good news. You know, that'll feed the spiritual hungry. I love the fact that Jesus said, I am the bread of life. And it's so significant to me that Jesus, the bread of life, would be born in Bethlehem. Because Bethlehem is a combination of two Hebrew words, Beth, which is city, and Lachem, which is bread. Beth Lachem, or Bethlehem means house of bread. And you realize when he was born, he wasn't put in a, in a crib in a hospital. He was put in a manger in a barn. And what do you put in mangers? Mangers are feeding troughs. That's where you put the food for the animals to eat. And so here's the great story of the beginning of the good news. That God sent the bread of life to the house of bread and laid him in a feeding trough as if to say to a hungry world, this is the bread of life. And like Jesus himself would later say, he who eats of me will never be hungry again. And then 33 years later, that bread hung on a cross and the bread was broken. And three days later in resurrection power, that bread was multiplied to a hungry world. Born to the house of bread, broken and multiplied in resurrection glory. And so Paul could say in Colossians chapter 1, this gospel, this good news, it's spreading all over the world and it's still bearing fruit because God is feeding hungry people. Can you imagine, remember what it was like when you were lost, when you were guilty and when you were empty inside and you were bound and you were spiritually starving and nothing could fill the hole inside. When you come to the gospel, you are walking into a a windfall of gospel grace like these guys walked into a windfall of more food and money than they could ever need for themselves. What amazing thing is to suddenly walk into life, walk into forgiveness, walk into hope, walk into freedom, walk into destiny and fulfillment and peace and love. It's like the gospel is like a windfall beyond belief because the bread of life has come to feed a hungry, starving world. And these guys said, what we're doing is not good, for this is good news. And it wasn't bad that they took it first. But they said, what's bad is that we're keeping it to ourselves. And so here's my two lessons from four lepers. You can be thankful, by the way, for the sake of time, that it's not four lessons from two lepers. (laughs) Just two lessons from four losers. Number one, I learned from them that, to be honest, it is easier to keep it to ourselves. Let's be honest. It's easier to keep it to ourselves. That's why most churches don't grow. It's much easier to have it our way and keep it to ourselves. That's why many of us don't share Christ with anybody, because it's easier to keep it to ourselves. And uh, I just want you to read those, those words with me again in verse, in verse 8. They ate and drank and carried away the silver and gold and clothes, and they went off and hid them. And they returned and entered another tent and took some things from it and hid them also. Because that's the first inclination. You walk into the windfall of good news, and you so don't want to lose it that you hide it. 
because to not hide it would have exposed them to tangible risk. They knew if they went back to that city of Samaria, first of all, they're unwanted because they're contagious. They're lepers still. And, uh, you know, either with people not even thinking sanely because they're ravenously hungry, either they'd be torn apart for tormenting them with things that they probably wouldn't believe, or they'd be trampled to death with the crowd heading out to see if it was right. I mean, they knew there was a lot at stake if they didn't keep it to themselves. Kind of reminds me of the guy who showed up at the gate of heaven one day. You know, and the angel's checking him in, getting down his, the pertinent date on his clipboard and said, well, you know, you get into heaven because of God's grace, not because of your good works. But once you're inside, you'll be judged by, according to your works and get your rewards. So why don't you try to think of some good deed you've done in your life? And the guy thought for a minute and he said, I think I can think of something. He said, well, the angel said, why don't you, why don't you run it past me? we see how it plays. Well, he said, one day I was walking down the road I saw this big kind of motorcycle thug guy, and he was pushing this little old lady around trying to steal her purse. And I knew I had to do something, so I got up and I walked over there, and I, I thought maybe if I if I kick over his motorcycle, I can distract him enough for her to get away. And so he kicks over his motorcycle. That sure worked. He let her go. She, the guy said, "Run, lady, get help!" That old motorcycle thug came at him. So first thing, I just, I just kicked him as hard as I could in the shins. Then I took my fist. I plowed it right into that big oversized gut of his as hard as I could. And the angel's going, whoa, that's quite a story. When did this happen? And the guy looked at his watch said, oh, two or three minutes ago. You see, there's no guarantees in this. And I want to tell you, I've been a pastor for a long time. I've watched a lot of people look, live way too safely. And, you know, we always got our reasons, right? You know, one of them that really troubles me a lot lately that I'm hearing more and more around the country is, is people, and pastors tell me, that, you know, people don't volunteer as much unless we're willing to pay them. You know, well, okay, I'll give five hours a week to the church, but at least minimum wage, pastor, because, you know, my, my time's valuable. And if you think what I'm doing is valuable, you'll pay me for it. I mean, this is a trend that's sweeping churches. Or sometimes it's, it's, it's the excuse that sounds so pseudo-righteous and it's so stinking bad. It's, well, I'm not worthy. And you know what? You're right. You're not worthy. So face it and get over it. Because the cross of Jesus Christ has made it irrelevant. Yeah, I'm unworthy. I'll go to the front of the line being unworthy for God to use me. And I, I see people, oh, Pastor, I'm not worthy to do that ministry. Or, oh, I don't know if God barely loves me, you know. And, and you don't know, you know, I'm trying to be a Christian, but I'm not the best Christian in the world. And, and, and you, know, I don't, you know, I don't think I'm worthy for God to use me. Listen, either Jesus died and suffered for hours and his body was beaten and his blood shed, either that's enough to forgive you or else there's no alternative. If you're in Christ, he has taken care of what it takes to make you worthy. You're not worthy in yourself. He has made you worthy in the cross. Our theology is deficient. We're like saying to Christ, what you did isn't enough. I'm still not worthy to be used by you. I want to tell you tonight, this morning, categorically what Jesus did in the cross is more than enough to wash me clean and make me eligible to be used by him. 
once you've come to the cross, you can, and once you're covered by the blood of Jesus, and you're forgiven through no effort of your own except your trust in him, you never, ever again can say, I'm unworthy, because it's now a lie. It's now a lie. It's not true that you're unworthy. You are made worthy by the blood of Christ. And the kissing cousin to that one is, well, I'm not qualified. I'm not qualified. I mean, who am I to try to take a risk and do a ministry and feed people spiritual bread? You know, I'm not qualified. I'm not that talented. I want to tell you, when you look at this great God that we serve and his awesome power and his greatness, you realize he knows everything. He is everywhere. He can do anything. He can do what he wants, when he wants, however he wants to do it. He is sovereign. He is omniscient, omnipotent, and omnipresent. He is an awesome God. And it's not like he's looking at Jim Bradford and saying, boy, he's got a Ph.D. in rocket science. You know, that's what I'm missing. If just I could get a rocket scientist on my team, then maybe I could really do something. You know, when you're omniscient, omnipresent, and omnipotent, you're just playing hard to impress. I mean, me at my best, at my best, I'm not very impressive compared to him. You can take any Nobel Peace Prize winner in our world. They're not that impressive compared to our God. You can't impress him. In fact, that's the wrong question. Am I qualified is the wrong question to ask. The right question to ask is, what risk can I take that will require me to really lean on God? Because this is what Paul said. Paul said this, God does his best work in my weakness. He hates the competition. He's not like, can I find a lot of qualification in you so that, so that uh, you know, what I'm deficient in can be made up in your great qualifications? No. Because God has no deficiencies. I do a lot of things to compensate for my deficiencies. But he only acts out of his sufficiency. And that's why he doesn't need my sufficiency. His sufficiency meets my deficiency. He does his best work where I'm weak. Paul said, I have learned that when I am weak, he is strong. And the right question is not, am I qualified to take a risk and give it away? The right question is, what risk can I take so that I will desperately need his greatness and strength. That's the first thing I learned from these lepers. Because of all these lies, because of all these excuses, it's so human and it's so easy for our first intention to be like what these lepers did, to have the good news and hide it. But the second lesson is that although it's easier to keep it to ourselves, it's better to give it away. It's better to give it away. So I'd like to close by asking you two questions. These lepers said, you know what? Yeah, it is easier just to hide it and have it to ourselves, less risky. But it's not right. It's better to give it away. And I'd like to ask you in light of that, just two simple questions. Number one, what are you doing to get outside of yourself for the sake of people who are spiritually hungry? What are you doing to get outside of yourself? You're kind of answering that as a church this week, although it'll probably be optional, obviously, who participates. But, you know, that's the question, whether it's this week or some other thing. Maybe it's just every week. And I'm a pretty busy guy, but I'm a part of the Rotary Club where I can meet business leaders in my city. 
And you know what? I, don't, I technically don't have time for it. I often think I need to drop this because I'm too busy in quote-unquote ministry. But it's one of the few places I get to hang around non-Christians. You know what? And it would be easier just to quit Rotary. But it would be better to hang in there because I just need to be carving out time to be friends to non-Christians and hang with them. Or maybe you do like my friends Ken and Val did. Ken and Val were attending that church in Vancouver, British Columbia I was pastoring a few years ago. It's the largest unchurched urban area in North America. We had a Buddhist temple down the street from us, Sikh temples all over, Muslim mosques. It was, uh, it, it's the most, and, 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 the, and the Canadian culture is just so more European than American culture. And uh, Ken and Val were a couple that grew up in this wonderful church I pastored. And he was on my board, Ken was, and they were just this very sophisticated couple. Their names were Ken and Val, but you could have called them Ken and Barbie. They were stunningly attractive. You could have put them, they're about my age, but just gorgeous people. You could have put them on the face of front of any fashion magazine in America. And uh, they were good, they were godly people. They had heard me talk about something in church that triggered this. and They had a 20-minute commute to church every day every Sunday, they decided to ask the Lord to help them do something to get outside of themselves so we're not keeping it to ourselves. And, 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 and this is how their prayer translates. It doesn't sound very spiritual. But they said, Lord, every Sunday as we come to church this Sunday morning, they pray this driving in, would you help us to meet one person that you will indicate to us we ought to take them out to lunch afterwards? hands off in terms of who it was, whether it's somebody that they'd been friends with for years or somebody they never met, hands off, that's God's problem. You just lead us to one person to spend an hour and a half personal time with after service. And we'll leave it in your hands. They start praying this. Finally, one day, Ken was one of the prayer workers. He was up to the altar area during worship while people came forward for prayer and in the first half of the service. And he went back after praying and said to his wife, I think we found the guy we're supposed to take out for lunch today. He was a guy off the streets, a homeless guy. And so you'd never imagine a more unlikely <laughs> pairing. A homeless guy with his really sophisticated, fairly affluent business owners who are as attractive as all get out and dressed to the hilt. They took this homeless guy out for lunch. This guy never been treated this way before in his life. But here's two people just saying, all we know is to pray, Lord, help us to do something to get outside of ourselves. Well, of course, the homeless guy came back, right? Feed them and they're back the next Sunday with five of his friends. They all went out to lunch. I left about a year and a year, year and a half later to move to Springfield. And by the time we left, Ken was starting to hint around with the board about how he might need some help from the church budget paying for Sunday lunch because he'd pay for it out of his own pocket. And it was now up to 35 people every Sunday that he was taken out to a restaurant, picking up the whole bill. He said, one day we sat in this great big group and counted up all the jail time. <laughs> all the jail time represented around that table. I forget how many, many years, dozens of years. They're about three hours behind us on the West Coast, as you know, with the time changes. And so this morning, up there in Vancouver at Broadway Church, Ken and Val are going to be leading a service this morning now for 150 homeless people just as volunteers in that church. 
Because they prayed, they prayed, Lord, just lead us to one person so that, so that we don't, and it's fine to come to church and say, God bless me, but Lord, just not just me, but help me. What am I doing? Lord, help me to do something to get outside of myself. And as long as I'm doing what you're asking me to do, even though I don't feel qualified and I don't feel worthy and I'm not getting paid for it, as long as I'm doing that, I'm going to leave the results in your hands. See, this is a no-stress affair. This is not our, our, our sweat in it. This is God's Spirit just leading it. This is listening to the Spirit of God, saying, Lord, is there a step more you want me to take to keep getting outside of myself? And then the second question. First question, what am I doing to get outside of myself? Second question, and what am I giving away? What am I giving away? God wants us to give away the gospel. God may want us to give away our time. As we're going to have hundreds of young people coming into Orlando this week to touch this area and other areas, giving away time, heart, energy. It's easier to keep it to ourselves, but it's better to give it away. This is the two things I learned from these losers. And sometimes, you know, God gets really personal and asks us to give away our money. You know, and God will bring us through this at some point. And I remember I was a college student. It's not fair that God would pick on poor college students at an offering time. But you know what? He's, he's not above doing that. And I was sitting there in a Sunday night service on this little Assemblies of God church of 40 or 50 people on the edge of the University of Minnesota campus. I was a poor student. I had $8 to my name, and it just happened I had all eight of those dollars, my last $8 in my wallet sitting there in church. And of all things, I guessed missionaries there that night. And that missionary begins to speak. And then our pastor, he gives a sermon. I don't remember what he talked about. pastor gets up afterwards and said, we're going to receive an offering for this missionary. And all of a sudden, I heard something inside of me say, give the missionary your last $8. And I sat there and I went, I rebuke that thought in Jesus' name. <laughs> like, get behind me. And the first thing, as spiritual as holy as this moment was, the first thing I thought of was the tube of toothpaste I needed to buy that week. And I'd have no toothpaste without $8. And some of my friends were quite interested in me having toothpaste that week. And then I heard the voice again, give $8. So rebuking the voice wasn't working, so I started to argue with it. I said, God, that missionary, there's maybe 20 or 30 people in this crowd so probably, you know, a couple three hundred dollars will come in, in the offering and that offering plus or minus eight dollars <laughs> is not going to make any difference to that missionary. In fact, I remember thinking consciously to myself, your worldwide mission is not going to rise or fall on my eight dollars. I won't even notice my eight dollars, so why can't I keep it? And God said to me, He said, You need to give it way more than that missionary needs to have it. Isn't that the bottom line? And I had to learn that as a young man. That I had, you know how you defy the God of this world, money? You know how you defy it? You use it. You do with it what it was not in, designed by the world to do. It was designed by the world to acquire things, money. And so you defy it by giving it away instead. That's how you renounce the Godhood of money in your life. And Jesus said, my priorities are way more important than your toothpaste. And, and I, I, you need, you need to deal with this early in your life. You need to be a person who gives away much more than you ever hope to take. Charles Will Sanders says in his classic book, Spiritual Leadership, that the person of true spiritual influence 
decides up front that they're going to they're going to put much more into life than they ever hope to take out of it. Right up front, you make that decision. I was sitting there in that little Assemblies of God church at 22 years old, and God right up front says, "You need to give." It's not that this missionary needs your money, but you need to give it away. I want your last eight dollars. I plunked my last eight dollars in that offering. Somehow a week later, I ended up with toothpaste, and I don't even remember how it happened. But you know what? Ever since then, I found you can't outgive God. He's just an amazing God. Amazing God. You see, it's easier to keep it to ourselves, but it's better to give it away. And so let's give it away, amen? Let's say, God, what's the next thing you're asking me to do to get outside of myself? And what in that process are you asking me to give away? Father, thank you that you gave it all away for us. That you went outside the gates of heaven and sent your son to the hellhole of this world to die in our place. To be the bread of life, to be broken and multiplied. And oh God, I pray you'll break us and multiply us in Jesus' name by the power of your spirit. Lord, there's spiritually starving people that you've loved and died for. And we pray, oh God, that you'll help us with whatever it is your spirit would say to us in this moment to get beyond ourselves and to give it away. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this message, Two Lessons from Four Losers, with special guest Dr. James Bradford, General Secretary for the Assemblies of God. For service times and more information about City Church Orlando, please visit our website anytime at orlandocitychurch.org or call 407-321-9600. 